Join brilliant minds as they come together to tackle the biggest healthcare problems facing the globe. The content in this series is taken from the 2018 conference in London. Coming up is Lord Nigel Crisp interviewing the founder of THET, Professor Sir Alger Parry, as they discuss how healthcare has evolved in the UK over his lifetime. Enjoy. This has obviously been an inspirational conference, um, huge energy, real building of a, of a movement. And I was just looking through um, the programme and thinking, Crikey, you know, there's a Masters in Global Health here in terms of the, the input that people have had over this, um, over this period. Uh, and it's also a great pleasure to join Eldred on the platform here. He's been an inspiration to me and a real reason why I got involved in global health. And I, as you just said, Judith, I suspect that may well be true uh, for other people around the, uh, uh, around the room and certainly around the UK. So, Eldred, you've, you've had this career where you've spent an awful lot of time in Africa. I think you've been a dean in at least two medical schools in yeah. different countries, in Ghana and in Ethiopia. You've taught in Nigeria. You've written the definitive book on health in Africa. And somewhere in all of that, you started THET. So why did you start THET? Well, Nigel, that is uh, the first ball at my middle stump, isn't it? <laughs> I started THET because having... My last two posts were deans, one in, in Nigeria, one in Ghana. And I was conscious then that Britain, which had done, we had done a lot for overseas Commonwealth universities and medical schools, and that had fallen away. The Inter-University Council for Higher Education Overseas had been dissolved, and there was no, and there was no one doing things except good people through VSO wanted to volunteer, but there was nothing systematic at all. And so I thought it would be an opportunity to fill the gap which which had arisen. Uh, and that, I think, is probably all I could say about it in answer to that. Of course, it was a very different time. Yeah. Um, so I comment on the yeah, time. Why, why do you do that? Well, the time then was... So different. There was much less interest in what we're here for today. There was civil war in Somalia. In Somalia, there was civil war in Ethiopia. Ghana hadn't long emerged from a coup. Um, Uganda had Milton Obote after Idi Amin. Things were difficult. The main street of Kampala was potholes and no cars. And in the medical schools, there were no books, just none. No journals in the library in, in McCurry. It was difficult to describe. And deans, I talked to a couple of deans, and they said, we'd love some books. Can we have journals? So we got, I think the Lancet gave a journal to a couple of places, and then we started to find books. And the Wellcome Trust was very generous. I'd been working for them. And uh, Roger Gibbs, who was the chairman, had become a friend. So he found a little bit of side money in the Wellcome Trust. Mm -hmm. And we put books, working with Book Aid International. At that time, it was called the Ranfurly Library Service. Because Lady Ranfurly, had, her daughter had been at school with the person who ran it, Sarah Harity. And so, Sarah, would you like a job? And so she said, oh, yes, I'd love a job. Would you run the Ranflow Library Service for me? Uh -huh. And she was wonderful. And we worked together 
with schools, we got a, a packet of textbooks and we put them in medical schools so that when students did a course, they could take a book from the library and hand it in and they recycled them through the school throughout. It was a, it, that's how we started. Yeah. And, and who got involved? So there's a we there. Did you have a Well, I just had a secretary for three years. And then our youngest daughter finished her master's in development because she'd been born in Ethiopia and went to primary schools in yeah. universities where we were overseas. And uh, the trustees said, oh, I shouldn't appoint her. I should make an open advertisement. And one trustee who was a distinguished silk said, of course you must appoint her. And Dr. Shitai said to me, she transformed that. And our daughter, Victoria, recruited people, and then uh, Susanna Edjang came along, who later worked for Nigel. Yeah, yeah. But you also got quite a lot of, of, of UK doctors involved, didn't you, through your sort of... Yes, well, I, I knew quite a few, and I had friends at home, and we'd done collaborative research. And... The first request which we had came through the dean of the Addis Ababa Medical School. At that time, our ambassador in Ethiopia, uh, Sir Harold Walker, was very supportive of any idea to help because yeah. Ethiopia was out in the wilderness as far as this sort of work was concerned. And he said, go to Gemma in the south where there is a new uh, medical school founded by the ministry because the Addis Ababa graduates are too urban in their interest. And we went to see a wonderful Ethiopian called Dr. Teklazian, and he didn't say to me, please help us to put in primary care, because primary care was immensely fashionable after the Alma Arter Agreement in 1978, and all the money was going into that. He said, please help our young specialists. So we brought them to this country, young specialists who needed further training, to friends uh, at King's College Hospital with Dr. Peter Watkins and his team and others. And they developed the skills of the young Ethiopians. And that model really has carried on ever since. And then, of course, they grew into bigger grants. And one of those links was with the... Uh, the um, city hospital in Nottingham. And I went with the chief executive of the city hospital in Nottingham, and she said something like this, I've got a budget of hundreds of thousands of pounds. If I can't spare people to come here for two weeks at a time, I'm not much of a manager. And so the laundry people, the library people, and all sorts of colleagues and nurses, the psychiatric nurses, kept on going through the city hospital over a period of years. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting because you're, you're talking about a period here which was the sort of end of the 80s into the 90s, yes. wasn't it? And so on. And sort of almost before global health was invented, one, you know, in, in a way. You know, the, the language has changed, hasn't it? In uh, yes. It, there wasn't really interest at that time yeah. so much. Yeah. And if I could comment on that, I think that's a terribly important point Nigel has made because the interest now, both in medical students and young doctors mm -hmm. and more widely is extraordinary. Yeah. And, of course, if I can comment on that, in, in, in the NHS, 
perhaps I can ask you, Nigel, here, um, how was it that, perhaps I can tell you what Nigel did. He was enormously kind to us in that. And I remember having dinner with him and some other people a couple of times, and then we came along to Whitehall, and I was intimidated by the long tables and the serious-minded people with piles of paper in front of them. <laughs> and we sat at these so tables, <laughs> and we sat at these tables, and um, Nigel then said, well, I've got somebody here who I believe could help you. Perhaps you take on that now. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I met Eldred and, and started to hear about this uh, this whole movement and indeed came across, I remember one particular clinician, I, I, at one point I was duty director of the Oxford Teaching Hospitals and an Oxford uh, clinician saying to, who, who went and spent a little bit of time in Africa with a partnership scheme actually with mm. KCMC yeah. in, in, in Tanzania and, and Oxford. <coughs> and she said to me, you know, I was only there a short while and I remembered why I became a doctor, you know? Because she'd been working as a, as a radiologist, as it happens, in a, in, a, in a very tight sort of the controlled environment, and here she was, remember, having to go back to first principles. And I realised what a refreshing thing this was for for, for doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd been talked to by a number of people about it. And at that time, we had a dean, a GP dean from the uh, southeast. Well, anyway, around Winchester, I can't quite remember the configuration. You may notice that the NHS changes its organisation every so often. A man called David Percy, who some people will, uh, will perhaps know, uh, and we were able to second him um, to that for a period of, I think, uh, 18 months or two yes, years. Yes, it was. Like, yes, it was. Two years, in order to help develop partnerships and spread the word more in the NHS um, and, and make links and so on. I think that was pretty successful. Wasn't it, it? It, was, it was seminal to us. It made a huge difference. And to have a a very experienced doctor who is respected in Whitehall and yeah. and respected clinically, particularly in the Western region, was a tremendous help. Perhaps I could ask you, Nigel, I noticed um, that you actually began in the voluntary sector. Yeah. Yeah. Did you sort of have insider knowledge, as it were, from the voluntary sector, how this sort of thing might work? Well, maybe a tiny bit. Yeah, in my career, I've probably spent... 20 years in the voluntary sector and 20 years in the NHS. Well, I know I spent 20 years in the NHS, um, uh, but the rest of it, and I I'm basically in the voluntary sector these days, I guess. Um, and I suppose so, but I, I think the, the, the sort of important point is that having been in the voluntary sector and then in the statutory organisation, you see both sides and you learn to interpret and you see things from different perspectives. And that's actually one of the things that I think you've done so remarkably through that is that those of us who are Brits and I often say at this point, you know, we've got a, we, we have our NHS spectacles through which we see the world. Well, if you go to Jimmer, as I did, and this was my first introduction to to Thet's work, was going to Jimmer mm. with you, actually, yeah. in, uh, uh, in Southern Ethiopia, um, you have to take off those spectacles, and you have to see the world from another perspective. You have to understand that everything you thought was obvious and true shifts. And I think some of having been in the voluntary sector first meant that I came into the... Um, into the statutory sector with a different sort of perspective and the mm -hmm. realisation there was life outside, you know, the, the formal structures of the NHS and so on. And, and that's where I think that adds an awful lot because people only get involved in that because of their direct passion and their enthusiasm and their willingness to do things. But that has changed. I mean, there's, there's much more now than there was 20 years ago. Yeah. And 
could I ask you, perhaps extrapolating from that, have you found in government that there's been a change of interest? I mean, you seem to have managed to be to persuade government to do all sorts of things, and now with the APPG, which we salute and its its reports, how do you do this? And I thought, goodness, Nigel's got another report, and there's something more, a new launch. How do, have you found it difficult in Whitehall and even in the House of Lords to promote the sort of thing which you've been doing? Yes, <laughs> is the short answer. And, and, and the fact that, you know, the, the great presentation we just had about the next round of DFID funding, and I'm not sure if there's people here from DFID, um, why does it take so long? You know, we've been discussing that for really rather a long time. So, you know, um, there are difficulties. I understand that, you know, government's about politics. You know, and people are pulled in all kinds of different directions within government. I do understand that. Um, I, I think the, the, there are a few things. One is actually persistence. <laughs> uh, keep asking the, 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 and keep pushing and, and so on. I think another thing here, though, is how can you align your agenda with their agenda? You know, if you're trying yeah. to persuade the policymakers, the funders or whatever, what are you doing for them? You know, I, I've got a brilliant idea, but then remember, I mean, I, I was chief executive of the NHS for six years, and um, I reckon in that time I got on average three reports a day <laughs> from somebody telling me what we should do. You know, so writing a report, you know, and, and, and the worst reports, of course, were the ones with 500 recommendations. Uh, where, you know, uh, so I, I was complimented earlier for giving somebody some advice. If you're going to write a report, only have five to six recommendations and be, and be them very practical and clearer about what they are. So there are some things about how, how you do that, but I do think there's been a shift. The UK has become more global in thinking about itself. Mm -hmm. When I became chief exec in 2000, we didn't much care what happened outside the UK. Um, in many ways, you know, I'm talking about the UK establishment, and that's, you know, lots of people were doing things. By 2006, um, when I ceased being an NHS chief executive, I think there were a lot of interest. We were getting into the AMR stuff, which, you know, we recognised mm -hmm. we were all engaged in. Um, there were questions of how epidemics spread around the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were the staffing issues, the issues you talked about yesterday here around migration and so on, we were recognising our role there. And, and, and health that the agenda was becoming global. I think it started to become global with the HIV uh, experience in the in the late 1990s and so on. That's really when I think global health was sort of born. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and so, so the, the climate was changing. Sure. And, and the trick on a lot of these things, I think, is to spot the tide. Yeah. You know, see how it's changing. But uh, then you started the global health partnerships system, didn't you? The, well, I did a report for Blair when I when I left. Yes. Um, uh, I asked. I, I always say that Tony Blair asked me if I'd do a report on what more the UK could do to support health in uh, middle-income countries or developing countries, as we called it. But actually, the truth was, I asked Tony Blair to ask me <laughs> to, to do a report on uh, what more we could do. Uh, and um, as a result of that, I toured around a number of places, talked to Eldred, talked to other friends in this room. Um, uh, uh, and other people, and came up with this report on global health partnerships, mm. which was which, which actually I think had two insights in it, which weren't new to anyone in this room, but were new at the time to a lot of other people. Firstly, in um, when 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 you're working in other countries, listen to what the people there want to do. Don't come in with your homemade solution. You know, 
they actually have been there, they know about it, they need your help to implement their solutions rather than you coming in and fixing the solution that may have worked in Middlesbrough or Manchester or Macclesfield or wherever. Um, listen to people. Uh, and the second one was how much we had to learn. You know, how much we could yeah. learn from people yeah. with, um, just as smart as we are, but without our baggage of vested interests and history um, about doing things. Uh, and that it was a two-way street, and this was co-development. And th I, this is a message you've always said. Well, I think you enunciated the principle of theatre when you said that, <laughs> listen to them what they want. I mean, this is absolutely fundamental to what we have said, because yeah. uh, the illustration I use in my... Last job as a dean in Ghana, when Ghana just had a coup and yeah. the supermarkets were empty, yeah. you had to put your car at the petrol pump, hope you might get some petrol 36 hours later. Yeah. It was difficult times for people. And if people came to me then and said, this is what you should be doing, uh, we'll do it. For, I said, I'm sorry, we, I'm here working for what Ghana wants, not for what you think is good for Ghana. Yeah. And I'm sure Nigel has carried that through, and it's really fundamental. And it's, I'm so thrilled now that that is still the philosophy behind what is done through the organization of which I'm a spectator. <laughs> An active spectator, as I, I, I think we've heard. Just follow that up a bit. I mean, there's always discussion, isn't there, about aid and about yeah. aid policies. Yeah. And we went through a period, didn't we, of vertical programs oh. where... Yeah, okay, <laughs> that's the answer. But do you want to just say a bit about that? Because well, it was very people thought they yes. were doing tremendous good, and in some ways they were. Well, perhaps I can... This actually touches on another very big area. Much It touches on to medical education and on to why did we did a book. We did a book because the books were written for tertiary programs in rich countries, yeah, yes. and they were inapplicable. Uh, although used, sadly, in poorer countries. Mm. And they were biomedical in their approach. Mm. And then Mr. Gates came along, who saw a target and something which would hit the target, and it became even more biomedical. But actually, it is who is this person? Where do they come from? How far have they walked? How much can they afford? What does the culture say about how they will respond to this? Yeah. And unless one puts illness into the context of society, you're not going to have a very effective healthcare system. And if we try through a vertical program to say, we will do the treatment of one disease, it ignores everything alongside. And one lesson I've learned recently uh, through uh, Professor Christopher Whitty, who is mm. chief scientist in the Department of Health and had been acting chief scientist for the country, was to think of a cluster of illness. And every patient who we saw came with a cluster of illness, although 40 or 50 years younger than the average patient here with a cluster of illness. And, if, and much of that would have been environmental. Let me give you an illustration. I was walking, I was going through northern Ethiopia and we stopped at, at the roadside to photograph a, a family uh, threshing their corn with horses. And the children were playing, so we had a look at one of the children. And the child had heavily infected scabies on both hands around the waist. Now she thought that was normal. 
because that is how they lived. So the next question is, how do you live? Where's the water supply? It's no good doing, as you would say at home, go back home and have a nice change of clothes and a nice bath tonight. Water, sorry, I've got two hours' walk to get that. And so we wanted to see that sort of uh, Catholic approach mm. away from the vertical. And the other thing about the vertical was that an NGO or a government came and said, we will pay the local members of staff twice, three times what the government pays. And so this distorted the health services. And in Addis Ababa, in, I can't remember, 2005 or four, there was no one training for surgery, but there were 65 on a private MPH course because MPH was the criteria for entering into a NGO program. So the system was distorted yeah. by vertical programs. And it, what you said, Nigel, is very important. It, 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 and it's shifted on a yeah. bit since then, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. and just, just listening to you, Aldred, I mean, what you were talking about, about the entire social environment of, of somebody's illness or even mm -hmm. a cluster of illness, does just... You know, resonate with what we need to do in the future in the UK, mm, yeah. isn't it? With mm. with, with non-communicable uh, diseases and and everything, and, and it, it, an illustration of why of how much we can learn actually, sure. just by being put sure. in that environment to yeah, to to, 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 to think true. about it. Let me ask you a question, which, which was um, we've had a number of younger doctors, some I think maybe in this room, who have been advocating that global health should really be part of every curriculum. Uh, you know, at, at, at either medical student or, or immediately afterwards level, and, and indeed in other professions. Is that something you'd like to...? I honestly haven't given it much thought. I mean, think a snap answer would be yes. Yeah. I, um, the problem with that is that when medical training is run through departments by specialists, yeah. they become very territorial, and I speak as a dean. <laughs> former dean, yes. and I want these hours. So we try to get round that yeah. by saying we would have divisions, not departments, and we would then so not say, you know, we would then not yeah. say, what does this department want to teach? We would say, here are the students. How are they going to reach the goal which we know they need to reach? Who is the best person to teach it? That was particularly relevant for me in Ghana, well, I had a medical school with almost nobody. Mm. We had no one to teach physiology. Uh, but some of us physicians knew a bit of physiology because we treated patients with physiological disorder. And we based our treatment upon an understanding of the disorder of physiology. Mm. So we could teach the physiology. Who could teach the eye? Well, the answer is the ophthalmologist knew the physiology of the eye better than anybody. And so we had an excellent physiology course. Is it surprising that two of our students came to Sheffield to do an intercalated BRC and one got a first or something? I mean, it was not surprising mm -hmm. because actually, instead of saying this is departmental, it was functional yeah. and it worked. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would love to see a more liberal approach, but I think you'll find it very difficult in a gated department.
Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the, the young doctors in the audience will have a will will, will have a view on uh, uh, on some of that. We, we'd better start talking about the future, I guess. No, but, yes, but, we but just before doing so, um, worth reflecting on the successes of of that over the years. Um, what what would be the sort of things that you would pick out that you're well, pleased to have seen happening over these last thirty years? I I think well. Let us say the engagement of the National Health Service. Yeah. Over and more recently, a more academic understanding of what we're doing. Yes. A much yes. tighter evaluation. I've always yeah. regretted the humanitarian on one side and the academic on the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think there it's important to marry both. Yeah. Yeah. Well. The future, if I could just say one thing, we are in a world of climate change, and in Africa we're in a world of, in a continent of alarming increase of population. And when those two meet in the future, it will be very serious, and healthcare systems and all systems will be stretched and vulnerable. Uh, I look with considerable trepidation at some of the future possibilities. And we should seek in all that we do to be peacekeepers, to bring peace and to work for peace. Um, conflict destroys healthcare systems of all sorts and destroys health. And there's so much evidence of this. Um, and the less of conflict, the more of health. But I'm not terribly optimistic in that way. But I only know Africa, and I don't know other parts of the world. Let, let me come in just with a, a couple of comments from me. Um, I understand that uh, pessimism, but I also know from talking with Aldred earlier that there's also optimism, which is represented, I think, by the people in this room. In Precisely. You know, it, it's people. Yeah. Uh, for, for me, just looking forward, um, I've just written a paper actually called AI and EI, Artificial Intelligence and Emotional Intelligence. Um, the Bank of England governor said the other day that just as in the first industrial revolution, we moved from working with our hands to working with our heads. The next industrial revolution is working from working with our heads to working with our hearts. And where the jobs will be gained will be in all the, thi all the human areas, where you need emotional intelligence, where you're caring where you're doing persuasion, where you're, uh, you're, 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 you've got empathy with people and so on. And that's a really interesting point, because I think that's where we will see, over time, potentially, yes, yeah. investment in people. Um, and I link that with the thing that I'm doing at the moment, which I'm just going to flag up as an advert, because, yeah, anyway, your, your chair is a nurse. Um, I, I co-chair something called Nursing Now, which is actually recognizing that in my view and uh, others, that possibly the biggest thing we can do, or one of the biggest things we can do to improve health globally is empower nurses. There are 23 million of them out there, or some, many of them in this room, not 23 million. Um, and very often around the world, we don't let nurses work to the limit of their, uh, the top of their license, as the Americans would say. And so, so we've got this movement to make change. And I think some of the AI stuff will, will affect much yeah, more sure. what doctors do, actually, sure, interestingly. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and that whole caring bit, I think, yeah. will develop and grow. And that's where I get optimi optimistic, is actually, in the end, it's about people, isn't it? Yeah, actually. Uh, yeah. Well, I think what, now, just again, he's a visionary of what can be done. 
I hope not. I hope I'm not pessimistic. I just try try to be realistic about confronting some of the issues and being prepared for them. But I think it's very wonderful as you talk about nurses. Dr. Yosef's program of chronic disease could not have run without nurses, mm. and it is run by nurses as much as anything in the community. But again, and emergency surgery has been done by nurses or health officers with additional skills given to them, life-saving. So I, I'm giving a talk shortly, and I'm saying that the healthcare needs of Africa will not be met by doctors in that talk. So Nigel, I'm playing to your to your tune. Well, th thank you for that. And I wasn't suggesting you were pessimistic. I didn't want us to end on a pessimistic <laughs> note, you know, because actually there's a real realism. You know, in some ways, you look out there at the world of global health, and God, you can get uh, depressed. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but you can also see another world out there uh, represented by what people are doing, and you, and you could get really excited. And the two things coexist. And I think friends in the audience who've been working in this field for a long time, and I can see you nodding and uh, absolutely understand that, that sort of point. And I guess this is a grouping of people who... who it's like a blood transfusion of hope to come to a meeting like this, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I was also, may I just have one final thing? We, we, we were talking earlier, that, and, and you know, we were talking about 30 years ago, and we recognised that some people in this audience weren't born <laughs> then. And we thought, as you're filming this, you ought to start off in black and white and, uh, <laughs> and gradually move on into the colour <laughs> for the blood transfusion at, uh, 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 at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is the THET podcast on the Medics Academy Network. If you'd like to learn more about THET, you can find our website at thet.org.